It's another day here at the Comeback Team Studios. This is your host, Beck Lover, and I have an extraordinary guest, the author of his own book, From Brooklyn to Baghdad. This is a guy that's done it all. He's been a Marine, New York police officer, and he ended up going to Iraq and helping our military. It's a very important work for the intelligence community. And I am very proud to announce Christopher Strong. Thank you so much for having me here, Beck. I appreciate it very much. You like the way I pronounce Strom? Yeah, you got it right. Or is it Strom? Strom, like Strom and a banjo. That's what I tell people. I want to thank you for coming all the way up here. Thank you. And uh, taking the time to uh, speak to us about your extraordinary work. Thank you. First and foremost, I want to thank you for your service, first as a member of armed forces when you served. Thank you. And as a police officer for all the work that you did. During the amazing time that New York City had up until our current administration, <laughs> we'll get there in a minute, but um, here we are wrapping up 2020, crazy year, and a lot's changed, not only here in New York, but throughout the entire world and country. So uh, thanks for not being scared to come in here and, and be less than six feet away from you. <laughs> no problem. No problem. So Chris, is it okay if I call you Chris or Christopher? Yeah, Chris is fine. Thank you. Chris. Chris, you have a pretty extraordinary life. You, you, you were a Marine. You were a veteran of the NYPD. Correct. And then you ended up going and serving and working out in, uh, in Iraq with the military and uh, helping them do some really important work. You were helping them interrogate. Helping them interrogate. And, and the uh, main focus of the uh, project I was involved with was um, to, to counter the effects of IEDs, roadside bombs, Iranian EFPs. Um, because by the time I had gotten there, um, the shooting war was pretty much over. Uh, the majority of the soldiers, unfortunately, and the coalition forces were getting killed by roadside bombs, EFPs, IEDs. So before we go to Iraq, because that's the meat and bones of what I really want to cover, let's go backwards first. So where does, where does life start for you? Just where were you born? Uh, I was born actually in Massachusetts, but, um, you know, I don't really remember that. I lived in New York almost all my life, pretty much all my adult life, childhood life. Uh, I grew up on Long Island. Um, parents got divorced, uh, like a lot of parents do, and I was about four years old when that happened and um, moved in with my grandparents. Um, my dad was in and out of my life. My mom was uh, in and out of my life. And um, at 17, four days or five days, I can't remember which, off the top of my head, I joined the Marine Corps and uh, did four years with the Marines. Was it something you were considering while you were a senior or there's something you just said last minute? Okay. I'll become a Marine. You know, uh, actually I was, the house was a little bit rocky. Uh, there was some issues in my house. It wasn't a stable household. And I knew if I stayed there, I was just going to have to watch it get worse. It wasn't going to get better. And, um, I, I, used to go to the Roosevelt Field Mall, which uh, may or may not mean anything to your audience. I but know exactly. Right. It was a pretty popular mall at the time when I was a kid. And I remember walking past the recruiting office and I would say, hey, you know, those guys look sharp and they look disciplined. And, you know, I'd seen videos and grabbed a couple of pamphlets. And I said, you know, um, I think this is something I need to do, because if I don't do this, I'm going to end up getting in trouble. But, you know, it was just a matter of time. My mom was working nights. Um, my, like I said, my dad wasn't around. My grandparents, uh, actually, my grandmother had passed away by the, by the time I moved in with them. And um, it was only a matter of time. And, I, you know, thank God I joined because it's, it saved my life. It gave me some direction and it gave me some good uh, principles and uh, discipline and uh, get to work on time and things like that. You know, they say, like, showing up is 
90% of everything. And uh, it's true. If you could show up, you can learn everything else, but you got to get there first. So, so you go into the Marines. Yeah. Now, uh, siblings, you're the youngest, oldest. Do you have any? I'm in the middle. Uh, I had an older sister uh, and a younger sister. And um, yeah. And then my father uh, remarried and he had uh, three girls. And uh, so I had three half sisters and um, we're not close. Uh, we're not close now. And we weren't really close then. Um, but that, that's the uh, family dynamic. So, so not the picture perfect childhood, but you, you knew you were, you were that smart to know that, okay, I'm at the crossroads of my life. As many people fail at this point, it's very hard when things are not perfect at home and you were smart enough to know at that point, I need something to give me discipline in my life. Yeah. Something I, to kind of guide me. Yeah. I, I, and I, I will say that my grandparents were uh, very religious people. They brought me up in the Episcopalian church and um, they are really my foundation in terms of having any kind of religious uh, background, faith, uh, and certainly my moral compass. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I miss them like everybody would miss their grandparents. You look at them more like parents. Yeah, they were like parents and they really, um, you know, they did a great job with me and my, and my family. And, uh, you know, I'll never be able to repay them for that, really. God bless them. So you go into the Marines. Yeah. Now, did they have to pitch you hard or you just said, you know, what, I'm going in and that's it. Because there's recruiters. I've heard different stories. I had a great guest on here, Rob Farlow. But he's like, yeah, it made it look like there's going to be all these girls and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and we're going to travel all over the place. And then he's like, as soon as I got off the bus, he's like, what the hell did I do to myself? Yeah. So when you signed up, I mean, did you have expectations of what it was going to be like? Or were you just like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I'm going in. I, uh you know, there was always a mystique about the Marines. My uncle was in the Marine Corps and um, I always just by looking at them, the way they presented themselves and carried themselves, I always admired them and uh, idolized them probably as a child and, um, and saw movies like everybody else, you know, and, and John Wayne and things. And I said, you know, I, I think this is for me. I, I, I didn't see myself going into the air force or the Navy or, and I'm not knocking any of those branches of service. I just saw that this would be a test for me mentally and physically. And I, I it's something I want to prove to myself and um, like I said earlier, I, I think it was the best decision I ever made in my life because they really, the foundation that, that, that the Marine Corps gave me has carried me through and gotten me through some very tough spots when you felt like you just couldn't go any further or you felt like things aren't working out and I want to quit. I, I've told my kids from a very early age, and my son even says it now like a mantra, you know, Stroms don't quit. We don't quit. We're not quitting. You know, my son would join... One, I don't want to get too far off on the tangent, but my son would join a team and he wasn't at the time, wasn't very athletically gifted. And I would tell him, I would say like wrestling, like uh, who, who goes into wrestling that's never played uh, an intramural sport or, or with a school. And I would tell him, I'm like, you know, this is, a, this is going to be a rough crowd. It's going to be hard work. There's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, physicality in this. Wrestling is no joke. Oh my goodness. School I mean, wrestling. We're not it, talking yes. about WWF. Yeah. If it's, it's talking about real wrestling yeah. in the high school. What a sport. Yeah. And, and the same thing with the football team. And, you know, he would get out there and he didn't do that well in the beginning. And, you know, it's hard as a parent. Like, you know, I, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these parents that, oh, you got you to gotta go out and you got. No, my only thing was with him getting back to the quitting aspect. If you start here, you finish here. In other words, just because you don't get to play first string on the football team or just because you're getting your butt handed to you out on the wrestling mat, this doesn't end until the season is over. So I said, as long as you do that, I'll support you 110%. Fast forward, 
he's kept that in his mind. He knows whatever he starts, he has to finish whatever it is, whether it's schoolwork or it's, um, it, you know, some other avenue that he goes down, he has to finish it. There's no like, yeah, it's not for me. No, you finish it to the end and then we'll talk about it afterwards. I respect that. And I think a lot of times people give up too soon. I think that especially this next generation that's coming in behind mine, I feel like they just, you know, they don't like something, they give up, give them a trophy for second place. You know, I think we're, we've raised a very soft generation and that's very dangerous, not only for our nation domestically, but I think if we are ever invaded or if we have to invade, we're raising, we're raising a bunch of soft people, man, in my opinion. Yeah, you know... Not everyone. No, no, but it's funny that you say that because I see things like on social media and I'm, I'm sure you've seen it too. And, you know, I remember when, and then, you know, they list things that, you know, we did as kids, you know, I, I shoveled snow. I delivered newspapers. I couldn't, I couldn't wait for it to snow. Not because I liked snow. <laughs> but I, I knew I was going to make $500. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know. And, In a day. Yeah, exactly. Which was amazing. And, and uh, you know, and, and the kids today, you know, they. I haven't seen any of them out there. I saw maybe one kid. Uh, during this, we just had that, you know, nice snowstorm, yeah, a foot and uh -huh. a half. Did you guys get, you guys got, we, we got a little, we, but we got more ice than snow. But foot yeah. and a half. I'm outside. I'm like, man, I'll pay those kids right now. Like the kid that I was <laughs> one to return the favor right, right. to the younger generation, like when I used to do it, but they're not, like I saw only one kid out. It's crazy. I said, can I tell you something, son? He goes, well, I said, I know you don't know me from a hole in the wall. I said, but you're going to make it in life. He's like, what do you mean? I said, it's just, when I was your age, I did what you're doing. Right, right. It means you're a hustler. You care. You're a hard worker. If you keep this type of attitude up throughout your life, you're going to do well. He's like, thank you, sir. Yeah. I said, I wish you would have walked by before I shoveled my whole down. <laughs> but yeah, I understand all that. So, okay. So, you know, and from what it sounds like, you're able to start a family, thank God. And yeah. kind of, you feel that maybe you, you saw maybe what was voided in, in your early life, maybe in went a different direction for you, as you as being a father. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is circumstantial. I'm not, uh, listen, I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. It's just. Things it, happen. It ha it happens. Life happens. But, I, but as far as my wife and I are concerned, um, you know, we're involved in our kids' lives with limitations. Like we're not hover parents or helicopter parents. We, you know, you know, they rise and fall on their own. Let them make their mistakes. Right. And, um, you know, we try and guide them. They're adults now. My son is 20. My daughter's 23. But, you know, we're there for them and we let them know, you know. Think about what it is that you're going to do because, you know, I remember my grandparents and my parents saying, I just want to tell you, I've, I've done the same things that you've done in your life. And I used to laugh at them thinking like, they're crazy. They, what are they as the old man? What, what does do, he know? What do they know? But it turned out, you know, my grandparents were actually the smartest people on this earth. Now that I look back at it, they really were. And, um, but I was just too hard headed like most people to listen. When we're in our twenties, we think we know everything. And now I'm, here I am approaching 40 and I'm like, what a moron I was even up until 35. <laughs> right. Right. It's crazy. No, it's true. And time moves by and you look back and you're like, you feel like an idiot. So I guess the first lesson here is you really should listen to your elders. They know what they're talking about. They've been through a few things. Yeah, that's true. You go into the Marines. Fortunate for you. There's no major conflicts. Correct. You serve four years. Yep. You retire. Yep. Honorably discharged. Yeah, honorably. Thank God for but that. But you get too. this life experience. Yep. You come back to America. Yep. Well, I mean, you're always here, but I mean, you, you, you're you discharged. Now you're, you're in civilian life. Correct. What makes you decide to become a police officer? You know, I think it was to carry a carryover from the Marine Corps. Um, you know, there's a little bit of discipline. It's a paramilitary type of organization. And, um, you know, Good times and bad times to steady paychecks. So there's, there is that. Good now, benefits. this is in the 80s? 
This is in the 80s. I joined the uh, NYPD in January of 1987. That's when So I, you're about 22, 23? I am, I think I'm 23 or 24. I'm not sure. I can't remember okay. off the top of my head. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, New York was pretty, pretty hectic. It was busy. It was busy. Uh, crack was, uh, was really, you know, on the rise. Where uh, were you stationed? I was in um, the one-on-one precinct in Far Rockaway, Queens. Um, okay. And I stayed there for, um, I believe, eight years, nine years. Then I got involved in a shooting. And um, they said, you can't stay here. So they laterally promoted me to a robbery task force. So I was in anti-crime and playing clothes at the time when I had the so shooting. So what does that mean? It's just a lot of us are not oh, law okay. enforcement. So if you're involved in a shooting. Yeah. They said you can't be here anymore, but why? You were doing your job. Well, it, they, you know, be, believe it or not, even back then, they considered it was, a, you know, the, the papers were reporting it as a possible racial incident. In fact, on the front page of the Daily News and the Post at some point in time basically said from, from the bedside of the person I shot, he survived the shooting. Uh, he, sh- he shot me because I'm black. I mean, it's like, you know, and so... Because of that, they didn't want me to stay within the precinct, but they felt like I was was it was unfair. So they laterally promoted me to what they call the robbery task force. Kind of to calm the neighborhood down, I guess. Yeah, right? exactly. It's an appeasement tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now I'm basically still in plain clothes in a robber unit, and now I have the whole borough of Queens to run, and the primary focus is robberies. So you're a DT? I'm I'm still a white shield, what they call a white shield or a police officer, but, but plain clothes. Um, but I'm in plain clothes. Which they just disbanded, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they turned it off. Yep, yeah. Commissioner O'Shea uh, turned it off. Yeah. So I guess you, you're touching on some important points here. I mean, now we're kind of in this very weird place in New York right now, right? They, they've disbanded the plain clothes unit. Yeah. How detrimental do you think that is to the safety of New York right now? It's incredibly dangerous. It's it's dangerous. Do you think that's why we're seeing as much of crime as we're seeing right now? Oh yeah, without question. Do you think they'll ever have to bring it back? And why is that unit so important? If you can enlighten some of us that are not as familiar with what it does and the type of work that they've done. And I'm sure it evolved even after you left, but give us kind of the meat and bones of what that unit really did. Well, the people that are in anti-crime for the most part are seasoned people. Uh, you, know, you don't get there because of your good looks uh, or your personality or who you're friends with. I mean, I'm sure there's some exceptions to that, but by and large, you're a street cop. And if you're a street cop, um, you're not listening to the radio. You listen to the radio, obviously, if there's somebody's calling for help or there's a heavy job. But your main focus is to find the bad guy, whatever he's doing, bumping an old lady on the street, grabbing a pocketbook, um, breaking into a car, you know, those type of things. Somebody that has a gun and keeps adjusting his waistband, those types of crimes or or things that are nuanced that maybe somebody on the patrol aspect doesn't see the anti-crime cop sees because of their experience and because of the training and things like that. And it comes, it's a maturation process. You don't just say, I want to go into anti-crime and think that it's all going to work out. It's like anything else. There's a lot of practices, a lot of nuance, as I say. And now um, by disbanding that um, the bad guys are, are very slick. They're sophisticated, you know, Back in the day when I came out, they didn't even have cell phones. Forget about it. Now everything's a cell phone, cell phone video, cell phone picture, text message. Hey, you know, uh, police are at this particular location, you know, step back, whatever, if they're dealing drugs or whatever it is that they were going to do. So all those things now in, with the advent of technology, it just makes the job and the city less safe, not more safe, because the police, are, for, for uh, unfortunately, are taking a hands-off approach. They're not going to be as proactive. And certainly with the disbandment of plain clothes, now there's no element of surprise. So 
where you had plain clothes and maybe you had a funny car, we call them funny cars or a smooth car, that element of surprise or that little bit of advantage that you had to, to get near to this person that you thought might have been uh, carrying a gun or whatever is gone because now you're in a marked car in a uniform and they whether or not he got a text message or somebody called him on his phone or whatever, they see you coming a mile away like anyone else. So, so it's actually the opposite of what people perceive. That's right. We perceive that technology makes it much easier for them to get caught and to be spotted and to be apprehended, I guess. And well, you think it actually, well, just as technology increases for law enforcement, it kind of levels the playing field a little bit for them too, right? So it's, yeah. it's not like this disproportionate, it actually helps them in other ways. So maybe it, it hurts them in, some, in certain ways, but it actually can help criminals in different ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tactical advantage that they have that, you know, they're, they're using technology like a lot of things could be used for good. It could be used for bad. You know, just like when you're driving on the highway and um, they have this, uh, it's an app called Waze. And it basically lets you know where the police are. Love it. Yeah. And so, again, so I would imagine in the criminal realm. Especially you know, when I'm driving through Virginia. <laughs> love it. I would imagine in the criminal realm, there's something, you know, they have, you know, group messages and things like that, that they, um, they, they use to let the other person know, hey, you know, get off the block. Don't, stop dealing drugs. It's too hot or whatever it is, you know. And so that, that whole tool of the anti-crime and the element of surprise is gone. And now, was that one of the biggest units in your time for removing guns off the street? Absolutely. That and street crime. Street crime was known for that. Street crime. So now, plain clothes cop. And I was pretty good at spotting them, for the most part. Me, myself. Right. Right. I could just kind of tell. Because sometimes, like, you know, the way you guys were dressed is like you're trying too hard to look like a civilian. In my opinion. No offense. Not all right. of you. But I could kind of spot them, for the most part. Right. It, when I would walk past them or whatever. And then right away, you could kind of see the bulge. I, I knew he was a cop. But what I'm saying to you is... Would you, one of my regular co-hosts on the show, his name is Arthur Nascarella. He's a 20-year second-grade detective. He was partners with Ray Kelly. Okay. When they went to school together and all that stuff. And, he, you know, he would dress up like a homeless guy and all. So, like, is that kind of like what you guys would do, too? It, it would depend on what, what the problem was. If you're addressing a specific problem where you need to really blend in with the environment, for the most part... You're not fooling anybody. I mean, you know, depending, and again, a lot of it is, is geographically driven too and demographic. So if I'm a white guy and I'm yeah. in a, in a, in a, in a all in a, black neighborhood or a Spanish stand neighborhood, out. I'm standing out. I'm not fooling anybody with my blonde. I had had more hair at the time than I have right now and, and blue eyes. But so that, you know, that, that goes, that goes out the window, but it's just a little bit of an edge that you have. And again, the aggressive nature of anti-crime and street crime versus patrol is worlds apart. You know, patrol, and patrol, I'm not knocking patrol because I did patrol for eight years. And you need patrol, and patrol is the backbone. And that is a physical deterrence by them just driving down the block. How much crime is deterred versus not if they're if they're in plain clothes? You know, that remains to be seen. People look at, at statistics, and they have their own opinions, and, and they have the bean counters and the analysis people. They look at that. But one thing is for certain, anti-crime goes away, violent crimes spike, gun shootings uh, spike. I think we're definitely Homicide, seeing that. Homicides spike. We're definitely seeing that in New so, York right now. And now shootings are through the roof. Right and now. now the threshold for even something like a grand larceny, I don't even know what it is in New York because I'm so far removed, has gone out the window. So now somebody shoplifts somebody, something for $500. It might only be something that they could give them a summons for. That's not even something that's even arrestable for. So the whole quality of life, the broken windows theory, all that stuff is all coming back. It went away, you know, because we had proactive policing. We had, you know, a a good mayor, Mayor Giuliani, and 
you know, the city was better he was the for best. it. He was the freaking hero. He saved New York, man. And and now it's... But do you feel that at times that... And one of the complaints was, like, stop and frisk. Was that around at your time? Not really. Oh, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you don't feel that that sometimes can be going over the like going over the the you know maybe the limit a little bit i i think it can i think i think is there ways to not go over that limit do you feel like it was abused i mean a lot of people from the black community and the latino community feel like that maybe cops were excessive with that well I, what's your opinion on that i my opinion is is that um when people try and inter, in, inter uh, uh introduce race into policing uh they lose me in the conversation i i because the idea that a police officer, I'm white, obviously, but the people that I work with, it's like the United Nations. So the idea that I'm going to go out and selectively pick one group versus another, the, there's 52% of the NYPD is non-white. The minority, that's a fact. So how, how, so. So, so you, guy, your partner is black, for example, right. and you're going to go out and go after black right. people. I'm only, I'm only picking black people. And of course, my partner isn't going to be upset by that. And he's just going to turn a blind eye. I mean, it's, it's just a joke. It's I a found joke. the statistics ridiculous, actually. If you go on Google and you type in NYPD uh, racial, you know, uh, demographics or whatever. Right, right. It's correct. It was like f an overwhelming half percent, half of the department is people of minorities. It's true. It's true. So I, I kind of have to, you know, agree with what you're saying. How can you be this racist organization, especially in New York? I can't talk about right. the rest of the country. I can talk about New York City. Right. How are you going to be a racist organization if half the people that are on the organization are people of color? Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 you know, the other, there's two parts to the stop question and frisk. The, the one part is if we just take down uh, the actual sheer numbers, and I don't have the numbers in front of me and I'm not one of these numbers people, but let's just say that percentage-wise that um, blacks and Hispanics make up 40% of the city. I don't know what it is. I'm just throwing that out as a yeah, number. Yeah, just a random statistic. Okay. So then 60% are non-black or Hispanic. Well, what are the raw numbers versus white versus black? Okay, is there a disparity? Okay. Again, what neighborhoods, let's go back to the demographics of the neighborhood, what neighborhoods were these stop questions and frisks being conducted? Okay. So if, the, if we factor that in, and then we factor in a third factor, which doesn't get spoken about, how many people were arrested that were stop questioned and possibly frisked? So if I stop you, and, and uh, I frisk you and you don't have a gun or you don't have a weapon or, or whatever it is, are we, looking at, are we looking at all three of these things or are we just looking at the stop? Because if we're looking at just the stop, then that's where people can get the perception that they're being disproportionately uh, uh, looked at by the police department. If they're being stopped, frisked, and now being arrested, now we, that part of the equation or that part of the, of the, uh, of the demographic or metric needs to be in, in, in brought into this uh, conversation because... Clearly, if we stop 5,000 people and we only arrest one person, I, I see the argument. But if we stop 5,000 people and say 10, 15, 20% or whatever it is, and I don't know what it is, of those people who are arrested, well, then now kind of that argument starts to fall apart because it can't support itself anymore. In your opinion, every time you, you guys would stop and frisk, out of 10 times, how many people when you would stop and frisk, in your opinion, would actually have something on them, like a weapon or a drug? Well, that's the other thing. You can stop somebody if you suspect that they're involved or you want to have what they call common law right of inquiry. The people are acting suspiciously. And as an example, they're standing in front of a store and the store is closed and they have a backpack. Clearly not a crime, but it's kind of weird. And it's three o'clock in the morning and there's no explanation. Maybe a bus or two goes by and this person doesn't get on the bus. And by the way, he looks up and down the block. 
suspicious behavior. It's reasonable suspicion. What, what are you doing here? So I get out of the car and I approach you and I say, hey, what's going on, buddy? You know, reasonable suspicion. The guy doesn't want to talk to me, turns his back to me. And now I see him adjusting his waistband. That's a little bit more than reasonable suspicion now. That, that could be evidence that he has a weapon. Now I'm, I'm afraid for myself. I can articulate that he has moved himself in such a way that he could potentially have a weapon. I give him additional verbal commands. Hey, take your hands out, put your hands up, turn around. The guy continues to do that. Now, the physicality of the frisk might come become involved. I, I would probably approach him with my partner. We would check his waistband and see whether or not he had a gun or not. What are you doing here? Well, I, nothing. Is this against the law to, to just be standing out here? I said, no, it's not against the law, but why are you here at 3 o'clock in the morning? Where do you live? Oh, I'm not telling you. I don't want to tell you where I live. Well, what's in the backpack? I don't want to, I don't want to tell you what's in the backpack. He drops the backpack to the ground. Clink, clink, clink. Sounds like mechanic's tools. Well, you open up the backpack because now we don't know, is that a weapon or, is, or are these burglar tools? We don't know. Again, this is, I'm just giving like broad strokes on what police face in terms of stop, question, and possibly frisk. If the guy has burglar tools in there and it's not a weapon, but now I could see fresh marks on the door, well, do these tool marks from what he has in his bag match up what's on the door that he tried to break into possibly? I don't know, but it, were, it warrants more than just now a casual conversation with this person. It warrants more of, an, of a criminal investigation, potentially. It's a very thin line, though. It is. Between doing your job and maybe being proactive with crime and borderline harassment. I right. Mean, it, it's a very thin line. Well, you got to be, listen, if you're in an, ant, like, again, you know, we're talking about anti-crime versus patrol. And, and don't think for a minute that patrol doesn't get involved in this stuff, because they do, too. No, but, of course. But, but to a lesser extent, because they're usually, as we, we call it in the police department, married to the radio. So a lot of the things that they're responsible for, obviously, calls. Is, is, is the calls for help, the calls for an, a car accident, a sick person, um, you, you name it. You know, so they're married. We call it being married to the radio. Anti-crime is really not married to the radio. Obviously, we would, if you were an anti-crime, you would back your fellow officer up if it was a call for help or if it was a heavy call. But by and large, you're, look, you're not feeding off the radio. You are looking for the things I just described, things that are just don't seem right. And, and that takes time and that takes training. And don't forget now, anti-crime is out there always with a supervisor. They're not just some cowboy cops that are out the road by themselves. There is a supervisor assigned to each anti-crime team. He might not be physically there at each stop, but he is there supervising to make sure that everything is, uh, is above board. Everything is being carried out the way it should be. Interesting stuff. So you did that for the majority of your career? I did that for two years in anti-crime at a precinct level. And I did that for four years uh, in the Queens Robbie Task Force, and then I eventually got promoted to sergeant, and then I moved from Queens to Brooklyn, and then um, I did street narcotics enforcement. Again, another plainclothes unit. Um, I, I eventually went back to patrol initially, I should say, uh, when I got to the 7-6 precinct in Brooklyn. And then after being there for about, I guess probably about six months, maybe nine months, the captain had approached me and said, hey, you know, um, we're looking for somebody to do the street narcotics enforcement. They call it SNU. Uh, is that something you'd be interested in? I said, I would love to. And then I get involved in doing that. And now we're doing, you know, narcotics violations, search warrants. I mean, uh, and I'm working with the most amazing people, fun people, people from all different walks of life. And uh, I had a great time and I loved it. And I'm very close to these people to this day. So you're out in the 7-6. Were you close to the 
No, that's the funny thing. The, the precinct numbers really have nothing to do. They have nothing to do with location. No, it's right? a, no the 7-6 is... Right. I had Mike Dowd on the show. Yeah, so yeah. I know that a lot of cops feel mixed about all yeah. that. But uh, definitely a funny guest to have on, man. The guy speaks what he wants to say. He's just, you know... Yeah. Well, the 7-6 is, is... Were you around when that happened, that scandal? I was around. And what was the, like, what was, like, what, what, what were cops saying, man, about that at the time? I don't think, I, I think he really heard a lot. You know, Mike said New York was crazy back then, man. He was in East New York. It was, yeah, it was yeah. insane. I think, I think. Uh, Corruption was somewhat common, right? Well, that's his story. I, I didn't see it. I you didn't really notice it, nope. right? Nope. I, I'm, listen, I know he has a story to tell, and his, his story and his life experience in the police department is different from mine. I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I, th that's not something I experienced. I'm just going to leave it at that. To the people that you were with, at least. No, definitely not. And believe me, there's, there's, um, like anything else in life, you know, you're talking about money, drugs, um, there's temptation to go around plenty. Um, but no, I didn't see any of that. No, no. When you do a bust, there's cash, there's, oh my goodness, guns. I mean, if you want to, I mean, you could see how someone could go down that road though. I mean, it, it's, it, 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 it can be tempting, right? If you have, if you see. people are human, people have families. They're not paying you guys millions of dollars I, to I'm, put your lives on the line. I'm like not that. holding myself out here as a saint saying I'm the no, most No, but you could person. see how someone might go down that road. Maybe. I, I could see that depending on their circumstances and depending on their, 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 their moral compass, their moral compass. Again, I'm, I'm not putting myself out as a saint, but you've been on bus where there's a lot of money around. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh you yeah. Probably joke around and man, we could just take this and I mean, well, just a joke. Would you guys ever joke like that? It's, yeah. It's like, it's like, uh, what's the biggest bus you've ever been involved? If you don't mind me asking, if you have anything off the top of uh, money wise, you remember? There's been a, there was a, a few long time ago. So. Well, there's been a few, like I would say in the seven, six, we, you know, we, because of because of the nature of the business of drug dealing and crack dealing and heroin dealing, actually heroin was more popular than crack. Actually, when I was there, and I got to the seven six and was it two thousand two thousand. So I was there two thousand and then two thousand one with with nine eleven. Um, it wasn't unusual to see anywhere from five to ten thousand dollars on a raid. I'm not, I didn't have like these huge arrests where there's a, a whole class millions of, of dollars. Yeah, no, I, w I can't say that hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars and stuff like that. But I've been involved where there's been definitely thousands and thousands of dollars and hundreds and thousands of uh, glassine envelopes and, you know, and all kinds of madness and guns and all kinds of things like that. But nothing like what, what probably some other people might have experienced. Not like so that. in your whole career, you, you were involved at least one shooting. Was that the last one to your luck? Or? That's the last one. Yeah, that's the one and only thing. Kind, kind of lucky. And the guy survived. And he survived. Yeah. Yeah. Any other close calls when you're on the job? I mean, listen, New York was crazy back then. You're talking well, about yeah. you're talking about heading into the crack era. Yeah. Well, the end of it, right? Because you're in the 80s. Right. And uh, Giuliani comes in and does Batman's work, right. literally. The right. guy saved New York. Right. Ju you know, Bloomberg, he was a little, you know, tyrannical a little bit. But at least he didn't drop the ball and destroy New York. No. No. And he supported the police whether or yeah. not... People liked him on a personal no, level is, di is different from, you know, a professional level and keeping the city safe. Yeah. yeah right. he, he didn't right. drop the baton. He, he kept it going. You got to give, you got to give credit to where I just didn't like the excessive crackdown on nightlife, man. I understand that there's a, you know, court, maybe a correlation between late night nightclubs and maybe, you know, people getting drunk and drugs and all that. And I'm sure it definitely plays a hand. There's no doubt about it. Right. But right. I just felt like they went a little excessive after nightlife. Like they kind of like, that was a big part of New York's culture, man. You know, like the clubs and sound factory and, you know, limelight and all that stuff. And I mean, a lot of people were doing ecstasy and ketamine or whatever you call it, special K. And you know, I understand all that. And you, you were working during this time. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. I mean, ecstasy became a big drug also in the right. mid-90s to the right. late 
you know, late nineties and early two thousands. Right. Uh, any of that stuff was popping up in those neighborhoods, ecstasy pills. And no, you know, it's funny because again, geographically in that, your neighborhoods. Yeah, no, not because, uh, um, was more of a Manhattan thing, right? Definitely more of a, a nightclub, uh, type of thing. And also, um, the neighborhood I worked in, there were different enclaves. Was, one section was all Italian, uh, Carroll gardens, uh, Cobble Hill. Um, and then what happened was, uh, when, when the crack was raging, a lot of businesses in brownstones sat empty. And then when I got there, they were in mid swing in the middle of the regentrification of, uh, of this part of Brooklyn. So Red Hook like was known as being uh, a place you would never drive through, much less walk through no man's land. Yeah. Not anymore. And the same thing with the Gowanus houses, all that stuff is all changed. All the, all the yuppies. The, yeah. Well, they call them <laughs> my partner, uh, my partner, Jerry Ahern, a detective I used to work with, he used to call them pioneers because they would move into the, the, the dangerous areas. They the would, the, the, the white yuppie people would buy these houses, which today you probably couldn't even, I couldn't even afford the front door on some of these brownstones. It's just so astronomical. Same thing happened in parts of Harlem, which was crazy. Right. And Park Slope. And they got them for like a dollar, but they had to refurb them. Yeah, exactly. And they, then what they did was, um, I don't want to get too far off topic, but they, they, uh, they zoned it here, uh, historical. So you couldn't change the facade. Whatever you put back there had to look like the way it did back in 1920 when they built them, which is nice. So it's beautiful on the wrought iron and the brownstone and everything like that. But that neighborhood has gone gone like 180 from where it was when I first got there to what it is now. It's amazing. Even East New York in the early 2000s yeah. was yeah. very dangerous. Yeah. Well, people want to own property. And if you want to own property in New York, you know, that's... that's well, they might not have a problem now if they move quickly. <laughs> how much has happened... You know, they're saying 350,000 people left New York. You know, that's in the paper. Right. I think when you go, you know, if you take a drive through the city on the way today, when you go in, if I had to guess, it's well over a million. Oh, yeah. You think so? Yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It's so desolate. Yeah. Manhattan is like unrecognizable. Well, I know when they show. Have you seen it recently? No, I haven't. And, you know, when they show live shots of, uh, you know, a street view or, you know, Fifth Avenue or whatever, it it's a ghost town. Like it's scary, say. man. It's a ghost town. It's scary. Yeah. And I don't think it was the uh, pandemic that really did that. I think it helped, obviously. I think really when all the rioting started and the, the protests and then some of them turned into, you know, riots and whatever, that's really what pushed a lot of people out, in my opinion. Absolutely. Because I didn't see, you know, I'm from here. I, I have thousands of friends on social media that are all from the New York area. It was really after those riots that everyone just started like, okay, the pandemic was bad enough. We weathered the storm. It's still not over. Right. Then this is going on. It feels very lawless. People started leaving, man. Oh yeah. In yeah. droves. Well, listen, you know, the other, that I agree with you on all those points, but I also agree that I think a big part of it was the bigger companies that said, Hey, don't come to work. Let's telecommute. Yeah. The corporate sector is yeah. gone. Yeah. Now they figured out a way. Well, you know what? We really don't need you to come to work. In fact, that office space that we're, that we're paying, paying 150 a month for yeah, yeah, 100,000, 150. Yeah. Easy. Maybe we could just have like a storefront and you guys continue to work from home. And by the way, if you want to move out of New York, you can keep your job and you can just keep and doing they've done you some do. studies that their production's actually up for a lot of these office shops. Cause yeah. I don't got to spend three hours going back and forth. To oh work. my God. I, yeah. Can you imagine? Cause I used like, it I said, takes you hour, hour and a half. I don't care where oh, yeah. you are in the city to get to the city. Oh no. I, I lived in Long Island. So yeah. Even if I got on an so express, now you're saving three hours out of your life. You're staying home. And these are the people that really don't care if we ever reopen, by the way. So all the entrepreneurs that are out there are being penalized and, you know, there's not this big urge from them that if we survive or not. So it's, you know, until your ass is on the fire. 
Oh, yeah. I feel like this is the biggest problem with the New York situation right now. Well, it's, it's like they always say, it's not a problem until it's your problem. So you, now, now I'm aware of the problem. So you do all this, you literally see the rebirth of New York City during your time. Oh, yeah. On, on watch. I mean, you saw the 80s, which was the wild, wild west. Right. Okay, that was a time in New York when someone said to you, your mother works on 42nd Street. You would literally... You would fight because it meant your mother was a prostitute. Right. People don't know what that means if they're not from New York City. Right. You say that's a young generation. Like, yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, your mother. That was like an insult when I was a kid. Mm. Your mother works on 42nd Street. Huh? That was literally an insult. Right. No, and I today's generation, they don't even know what that means. Right. But you saw that and then it transformed literally into Disney World. Oh, yeah. And all these neighborhoods came back to life. And you went through the various phases of the of the drug cycles yep and you finish your end of watch successfully yeah yep and safe yeah i and you know i what was it like retiring man do you remember your last day of work i do actually um i had a beautiful retirement party in uh, lower manhattan at an italian restaurant and um all the it was actually a surprise because i was working in the intelligence division and um i had to do what they call a site survey at a place where um some dignitaries were going to be coming in and uh, part of that involved going to the actual physical hotel of where this event was going to be. And I was with my partner, uh, Mike O'Neill. And um, we went, made our rounds and things like that. And one of the things I had to do was also, because I knew I was retiring, was get my, my ring. So um, that was actually in uh, Chinatown, this jeweler that I had to go to, this guy who was actually, uh, his name is Louis Denoff. Canal Street? On Canal Street. Are you yeah. sure that real that ring's real? No, I know it's real. You I sure? Know, I know it's real. Sure, that's not uh, fool's gold and no, 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 no. It's it's real. It's real. And the, and the funny the funny thing about it is, um, not only do I have this ring, but my friend Mike has this ring. My friend Sean has this ring. And uh, now, is that a thing that they do at that precinct, well, or is it, it throughout the whole entire you know NYPD? Well, because I was a sergeant and they they knew I was retiring. They I actually bought the ring. But then what happened was, or I put a deposit on it, I go to pick up the ring, and now my friend Mike is standing beside me, and, and Louie just looks at him and winks and says, oh, you know, it's, it's taken care of, like that. Uh, so they gave this ring to me, so which I, I, don't, know, I don't know what a question I didn't ask. Obviously, don't ask a it's question. It's not even like, what it costs. It's the, it's the, it's the, oh, know. the sentimental value exactly. and the emotion attached to it. So these are your guys. Are these you, are my, this is are my you, crew, team. My team, yeah. And then from there... So uh, what was it like, man? I mean, your last day on the job. Forget the party. I mean, the last day. Do you remember when you clocked out for the last day? Were you emotional? I was. And it, it, I, I remember I was driving home. Um, I was on the Bell Parkway, and I was just passing the Varizena and Arrows Bridge, and I had a company phone. That was the last thing I had to turn in. So I, I actually was driving home, and I got a call from the, uh, the Fusion Cell uh, over in Chelsea, uh, which is where I Intel runs its offices out of. That's the main Intel office. There's other ones, but that's the main one. And uh, the girl that called me was uh, Stephanie. And she says, hey, Chris, how are you doing? I'm like, good, good. She goes, listen, I got a job for you. I don't know if you're available. I don't know what your what your cue is today. I said, actually, today's my last day, Stephanie. She goes, oh, my gosh. You know, and she, I mean, we were friends. We knew each other both personally and, and professionally. And uh, she goes, oh, I'll just find somebody else to give this to then. I didn't know that you, you had retired. I said, no, actually, uh, I'm on my way home. I said, I'm coming back tomorrow to, you know, actually go to the actual pension section, turn in my shield and all that other stuff and get the ID card and all that stuff. So she said, yeah. So, but I do remember it. I remember it vividly, actually. So Emotional? It was emotional. Shed some tears, don't lie. I, I did. 20 uh, years, man. I did. Um, not what, At the party I did because all these people were there, which was just like, again, a surprise party. So I didn't, I didn't know all these people were going to be there. And then um, I started reflecting on the career and 
thanking people. And then I started talking, telling a story about my daughter. And that's when it hit me. I was like, you know, cause all these people, you know, they knew my daughter, like, you know, they knew her from when she was a baby, you know, came to the christenings and the birthday parties and had been over the house for did drinks ever, and sticks. While you were a sergeant, you know, did you ever lose anyone on the, on the job? Anyone, God forbid, get hurt or? No, uh, th- fortunately, no. None of, no, none of the people. You had a great career, man. Yeah, I, I did, I'm now, blessed. Were you blessed. involved in intelligence too during that time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, because I don't know if we missed that part. Well, what happened was uh, I was I was doing the narcotics and then 9-11 happened. And uh, so. I know I was there. Yeah, exactly. I was actually on Park Row when it happened, yeah. as it was happening. Right. I, was, I was a student at Pace University. I, I read your bio. Yeah. 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 So, again, now I'm doing this new. Now everybody's back on patrol. As you might imagine, and you don't have to imagine because you know you lived it. Um, everybody was. Yeah, I remember running from my life with everyone else while people like you were running into those buildings. You know, it's funny how fast my fellow New Yorkers forgotten. Yeah. Not all of them, yeah. but a lot of them have turned their backs on the same people who ran into those buildings, regardless of color, race, or creed. While we and the firefighters, I won't forget them either. And we were, and I was walking over the Brooklyn Bridge. That's how yeah. I got out of there. Right. Okay. So I'll never forget. When I said I'll never forget, I never forgot. And I thank all of you for what you did that day. I'll never forget as long as I live. That's oh, uh, really nice to hear, and I appreciate that. But uh, that's actually my daughter's birthday. So I was working in narcotics. The actual day itself? The day. The day. My daughter was, she was born, born on, on 9-11. On 9-11. Wow. In, in 1997. So she turned four. Um, and um, You're on the job. I'm on the job. And I changed my tour because, I was again, I was doing narcotics. So I changed my tour to do a day tour and I'm with my partner, uh, Ginger Velasquez, um, amazing girl. And I'm still close with her today and, and we break each other's chops all the time. Um, and she wanted to change her tour with me. And so I did a day tour because I told my daughter when I kissed her goodbye on, on, on 9-11, I said, uh, you know, you know, happy birthday. You know, mommy and daddy are going to have, you know, cake and presents later on. Grandma and grandpa are going to be coming over. And um, so then, you know, I'm actually on Atlantic Avenue at Court Street at a diner and I come out and I turn my radio on. Uh, I had, it, I had it on, but I had it, had it low cause I didn't want to disturb the other people. And I wasn't in the rundown and uh, I come out and there's so much radio traffic. You can't even hear yourself think. And then I like, when you come down Atlantic Avenue, you're right there at the East river. I see the, I see the trade center is on fire. It's come, it's, you know, the smoke and everything. So I pull over to uh, Congress street and now I'm watching and I call my wife. Um, I said, listen, I don't think I'm going to be home. Uh, for the birthday. And with that, the second plane comes in while I'm on the phone with my wife and the girl that's in the car, girl, uh, Ginger lets out a huge scream. And I'm like, I got to go. And three days later I got home. So, but I remember all these people and I remember the fire department and I remember the people from home Depot because I was stationed at the battery tunnel at the time, um, which became a a huge parking lot. People home Depot under the BQE. Yeah. Exactly. And um, that's the Brooklyn Queens Expressway for those of you that are not from New York City. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, I, I fill in the. No, no, it's good. I'm sorry. I, I keep forgetting where I am and I lose my place in the story. But, um, but all those people came unasked and brought generators, gloves, boots, knee pads, uh, hats. The actual employees. The employees with the tractor trailer just literally like parked it right there at the, at the, at the uh, funnel part of the, of the, uh, of the uh, battery tunnel and said, we have no way of getting this in there. Can you get this in here? So now it's a question of, can we get other resources and get all these different things in there? Because obviously there's no power. People came to work as they were. They weren't prepared to have gloves and things like that. It was just, it was amazing. 
then the food started coming in. You know, um, pick pick a food company. Uh, you know, they a food chain. They just started dropping off massive amount of food, and then they built like a canteen under the uh, FDR, the you know Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, viaduct. Uh, it was just incredible, incredible. And you, you just so you end up going three days straight. Three days straight. What yeah. were you doing at that time? <laughs> I started out directing traffic. Then we tried triaging people because now people are, they can't make it through the battery tunnel. So they're forced to come back out. I think they were using my college as a triage center. They Pace, they, Pace University. But they probably had a, a million of them set up. And then at some point in time, now they got to get the vehicles out of the tunnel so that more emergency vehicles can get in. So now we have, again, volunteers, people showing up with tow trucks like, hey, can, can I help you in any way? You Complete strangers just going into it the tunnel. Brought, in my opinion, and this is why people say oh, 9-11 was worse. 9-11 was not worse for New York than what we're seeing right now. Because 9-11 brought us together. Yeah. 9-11, I felt this. Yes, we were sad. And, of course, who didn't shed tears that day? I was on the bridge halfway, halfway over the Brooklyn Bridge, which became a human walkway at that point. Right, right. And, uh, they, you know, I was on there. Fortunate for me, I had a bad feeling, so I got out of there with the people that I was with. And uh, I was halfway over. I passed the first, you know. The first stanchion, yeah. yeah. Before, you know, when they, they started crumbling. The cloud missed me, thank God. Because if I didn't leave when I had left, I would have been hit by that cloud. And God knows what I would have breathed in. Right. But I made it right over in time. So it's funny. We were both on that side as it happened. Yeah. Never knew each other. No. But uh, an extraordinary day. So you end up shifting into intelligence after this yeah. tragic event, obviously. Yeah. That happened. It was another, another, again, had some great commanding officers. Uh <clears throat> One guy is uh, still on the job today. He's uh, three-star chief, uh, Dave Barrer, um, an amazing human being. Um, How long has he been serving, man? He's got to be 25, maybe close to 30 years. He was a young, he was one of the youngest captains ever promoted in the NYPD. Super bright guy. One of the nicest, most genuine people uh, and saved, saved my police career. Like similarly, like how the Marine Corps changed my life and, you know, put, put me on the path. When the intelligence division was looking for more people and more supervisors, I was doing the narcotics and the, I'm working with these fantastic people and we're more like a family, brothers and sisters breaking each other's chops and, you know, going out and having drinks after work and just, just real love and real friendship. And, um, nine 11 happens. And now this, uh, my, my friend captain, he was a captain. Now he's a three-star chief. He had gotten promoted and he got transferred over to the 114 precinct over in Queens. And they were looking to fill this spot within the intelligence division. And I really didn't want to go because I'm working with these people. I have steady days like off. Like if it's going good, everything's feeling good. I'm, I'm, good. I'm like happy, like, you know, status quo, like, you know, and, and, you know, you get comfortable. And again, there was a familiarity with all these people too. So it's like, you know, I'm going to go into the intelligence division wearing a suit and tie and I'm going to be doing, what am I going to be doing? Like I'm a street guy. I don't belong in there, you know? So the, the captain, my friend, Captain Dave Barrera, had called me and um, he said, listen, I need a favor from you. He said, the CEO, which was at the time was this fellow, uh, Captain uh, Tommy Harris. Uh, and Captain Harris is now since retired. I don't know what rank he retired at. And he says, he wants you to take this spot within the intelligence division. And I would be kind of assigned to the 7-6, but still under the umbrella of the intelligence division. And he goes, look, just do it for six months. If it doesn't work out, I'll give you a soft landing over here in Queens. I said, okay, for you, boss, anything. The backstory to that was that my son got very, very sick and almost died at three months of age. He had gotten what they call RSV, which is a very serious virus. Uh, and he was in the ICU for, for nine days. So there was going to be some rehab involved with my son. This same gentleman, uh, Dave Barrere, 
got me assigned to what they call employee relations. I was home full pay for eight weeks with my son because he, he needed someone to be there with him every day, giving him a nebulizer and, and taking care of him. He was only three months old. And, uh, and so when you talk about amazing people, when you're talking about an amazing organization like the NYPD and the resources and the camaraderie and the friendship and the things that they do. It's the most famous police department in the world. People, people it's the most respected and it's the most emulated, if possible. Yeah. Yeah. That they send, you guys send people all over the world to train police departments. Absolutely. That's a fact. That's a fact, yeah. So you're a part of a world-class organization, man. I, I, I like to think so, yeah. I'm very proud of my service, and I'm proud of the people that I work with, and I'm proud of cops in general that just do it every day. Uh, you know, that it's not for money, because, you know, I made very good money. I'm not, gonna, I'm not complaining, and I have a very good pension, and I have a life, and I have my health, and I have my wife, uh, and I have my family that loves me. Um, but people think that police are the bad people, that they're not there to do good, that they have nothing but bad intentions, which is the polar opposite of what police are. Police are like the military. They have nothing but good intentions. They're there to help people. It's not for the money. There might be some people that have a little bit of an ego. Listen, what job doesn't have something that somebody has somewhat of an ego? Um, but that's not what drives people or draws people to be police officers. It's just not. And those people are few and far between. There's exceptions, obviously, but that's not the majority of the people. It's not a representation of it at all. I have to agree with you. Yeah. Thank you. So you get into intelligence after 9-11. Right. What does that mean, man? <laughs> what do you, what, well, <laughs> what kind of training do you got to do? I mean, what, what makes you someone that's involved in intelligence? What kind of skills do you need to be an intelligence officer? Well, it, it, a lot of the same skill sets that you would develop over a career, like interviewing and interrogating people, are now brought into the intelligence division. Now, you have to understand... The Patriot Act came about because of 9-11. So, Wasn't a big fan of that. Well, Got to be honest with you. It's a lot like stop question and frisk. There's a good side to it and there's a bad side. I don't and like it, the bad side. It's it's open for abuse, and I, I'm going to uh, allow that as, as part of this conversation. But the problem is, is that you're dealing with a sophisticated element of people. And I'm not talking about the average lone wolf guy that's inspired by something on, on, on a, on a website, which could be equally as dangerous as somebody that's part of an actual network or cell. But by and large, the Patriot act, it makes it so that if I stop you and I can tie you to, or connect you to anything that's possibly has a nexus to terrorism, I can detain you at least not arrest, which is different than being arrested. And I can start doing an investigation and the parameters of it also allowed for search warrants that maybe under a criminal offense, you might not be able to get. So for example, I stop a guy in a van. I use this as an example when I'm, uh, when I do teaching and the guy smells like diesel fuel. Um, and in the back, he's got a whole, uh, uh, um, Container. containers full of diesel fuel. But you know, it's not normal to see him in separate containers. Where are you going? Well, it's none of that is a crime. None, none of it. It's not illegal. It might be some kind of um, technical violation if he's transporting it over a bridge or through a tunnel. But I'm talking about you stop somebody. He's in a van. It's a white panel van. And he smells like diesel fuel. And there's a whole the whole uh, cargo area of his truck is full with diesel fuel. Now, for people that don't know anything about explosives, that might just seem like, well, this guy is just, you know, an independent salesman. For somebody that's had some formal training where that could be indications of uh, an ANFO fertilizer bomb, or they call it ANFO, he's good to go in terms of the Patriot Act is detaining him until we can figure out where he was going, who he's associated with. The story with. checks out. Yeah, yeah. Where, and he's detained. Again, not arrested. 
He may at some point in time become arrested, but we can detain him. In yeah, but for how long? Well, the law, has, it keeps changing because they have what they call a sunset on the Patriot Act. So the, as things happen, depending on what's going on in the, in the real world. Because we're talking about American citizens right, here that Ameri- have habeas corpus. Exactly. That have to be charged with a crime. You can't just hold them indefinitely. That's right. Or, That's so, right. you know, the, cons- the perception that people have of the Patriot Act is that, you know, you can be held indefinitely. Right. Right. Well, the way the law, the way they the, can send you to Guantanamo. I mean, I'm not saying that they can, but this is what people say on the web. And a lot of people spoke out against the Patriot Act. Right. And like I said, I'd rather have a dangerous free country than, you know, and I'm not saying that there's not benefit to the Patriot Act to right. fighting crime, but again, a very thin line. Right. Well, I'm just using that as an example. There are other examples where the citizenry, and again, this is the difference between what people's perception is of we're doing massive surveillance. I'm talking about the NYPD. Forget about the other agencies. The NYPD is doing massive surveillance on Muslim communities or Arab communities or one ethnic group. Which definitely bore the brunt of it after 9-11. Right. Mosques. Right. Mosques and things like that. You know, imams. Right. People that are having. You know, that felt that they were being harassed. Hate, these, hate speech and things like that. Yeah. But the problem that the, the way the intelligence division generally works Unless the police stumble upon something unrelated, like so I go to your house because of a noise complaint, uh, and next door I notice something odd in the backyard of this person's house, I'm there for a legitimate reason because I'm coming to your house for one Like a fucking bazooka tube or something. Or or whatever. Just something that catches your attention. Right, right. That's one aspect. The other aspect is somebody calls the police or either through the phone or email or a letter and says, hey, my next door neighbor is up up to no good. She's an 80 year old woman with like five cats. And oh, by the way, he's Middle Eastern. Oh, and by the way, every Monday night, like seven other people would uh, come to his house who also appear to be Middle Eastern and they have out of state plates. Now, again, none of that is a crime, none of it, but it might warrant an investigation that's coming from the citizen, not from the police. The police didn't say, we're looking at you solely because you're Arabic or you're Muslim or you're coming from New Jersey. We're looking at you because somebody called in a complaint. So, Unlike what people see on TV and some maybe some other police departments in the intelligence division, you cannot solve a crime or answer a crime or answer a call for service from your desk. You've got to go out and physically talk to somebody. You've got to do some computer checks. You might have to do some surveillance. You might have to introduce a confidential informant or get some source reporting. But by and large, 90% of those things turn out to be unfounded. 10% of those things turn out to be founded. Maybe two or three percent of them actually get reported in the news media because now you have federal resources coming in and everybody wants to get their ticket punched. So they want to be part of this investigation, too. So that I'm giving that as a as a as, as an overview about how the intelligence division works, what's their method of operation and things like that. I'm not going to get too technical because, again, I'm not giving away tradecraft either mm. on this podcast, no, you know, no. but I'm just giving that as a, as a general protect national security here on Beck Lover and the comeback team. <laughs> so anyway. Right, we gotta protect Uncle Sam. That's it. So you do that for about what seven years? I did that for uh, five years, just shy of five years. Prevented some crazy things from happening. Don't I, lie to me. I think so. There was some. Was there really some terrorists? Yeah, some, there? Re- some terrorists. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the we had some freaking Al Qaeda guys here. Yeah, absolutely. Seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, organized, organized. Uh, like serious shit. I mean, oh, obviously yeah. the higher ups probably got involved after yeah, that. Yeah, and, and and crazy enough. Um, 
And one I, of my friends who worked on the Joint Terrorism Task Force said, if you only knew half the shit that went. Well, I, I, I'm, I don't know what you've... He didn't get into specifics. He just yeah. said, just, we do our... Like, there's a lot that goes on that I, people have no idea. I will, I will tell Would you... Would you corroborate that? Absolutely. That Absolutely. there's so many close calls that if you guys didn't do what you did, that I, I, crazy I, things could have happened. I don't... I wouldn't say that there's so many close calls, but I would, what I would say is the volume of work and the amount of intelligence that is, is gleaned through the NYPD is is enormous people would fall out of their chair they have no idea and it could also be forget them doing something here that they use this country to generate money to send back to them over there that's a big part of it right fundraising um you know care is um another organization i could go on and on the the nypd intelligence division and i'll have this conversation with anybody i'll debate them is the repository of all human intelligence uh, nationally here in this country the fbi at the time, before 9-11, had maybe four or 5,000 entries of people that they considered people of interest in their database. Keep an eye on them. Keep an eye on them. Uh, we, sur- we surpassed that within six months uh, in the NYPD. We are the Google repository of all things Intel. We are sharing this information not only with the federal partners because they're the, they're the overseers of the uh, actual project, and their, their, their computer mainframe is directly linked into our information. So anything that's put in is, is, is anyone that has access can obviously see this. Also, uh, some people may or may not know that in every major country, I don't care if it's in the Middle East, I don't care if it's in Europe, I don't care if it's in Japan, Sweden, Norway, there is an NYPD detective and a sergeant and probably two, depending on the city, I don't care if it's Jordan or Israel, on the ground attached to the local host nation's intelligence officer. And the reason for that is because twice New York got punched in the face by people that were minding the shop and they weren't doing their job. So Ray Kelly said, we're not doing this anymore. And that caused a lot of problems with some people, as you might imagine, because those people thought that they were doing a great job and really they were doing a horrible job. So now because of that, when an incident happens, like what happens in Paris or in France or in London, there is an NYPD intelligence officer, full pay, at that main headquarters of whether it's London, I'm just using that as an example. They're there all the time? That, Oh, yeah, full time. They live there year-round. So we have NYPD officers right now, for example. Yeah. That are in foreign countries. Absolutely. And the local police there. Yep. And they're there all the time. All the time. It's fascinating. I never yeah. knew that. Yeah. And so, and the reason for that is because... They're not even there for training. They're there for work. No, they're there to work. They're there to, and again, I so work... So being for, extremely proactive in protecting New York City. Absolutely. And America. Well, and again... Whenever, whenever there is an episode or an event, a terrorist event, depending on where it is, the phone starts ringing, okay? The officer or the detective or the sergeant that's- Like, God forbid what happened in, was it Denmark with that psycho that went into the camp and, you know, he wasn't even Muslim, but that one crazy guy. There, there's, I lose track of them. There's so many of them. I think, I think Paris had, had just had another incident or Bel- Belgium and, and the Bataclan and all these other things. The one on the London Bridge. Right. Stabbing yeah. or whatever the hell it was. Exactly. So- the whole purpose of that is now, um, like, again, I'm, I'm flipping back now. When I worked in the intelligence division, if the phone rang, you had to get on scene. Because the guy that I worked for was this guy, Commissioner Cohen. He was a 36-year CIA guy. And he wanted to know from you, not from the news report, what was going on at the scene. And if he found out from the news report, then you would be replaced. So only four of the sergeants that did my job in the intelligence division in terms of live, live responses, meaning going to the scene of, of an incident that could have an nexus to terrorism. The same thing is now happening, is being replicated over in all these major cities. So now if there's an event in London, I'm just using London as an example, 
when we had the bombings, uh, the bus bombings and the subway bombings, there's an NYPD intelligence there at the scene giving that information back in real time. There's no lag in communication. There's real reporting and physical evidence and pictures and things like that coming back so that we know how what's going on, what was the methodology, and how can we try and prevent and keep the city safe. And if you look at what's been going on in New York City in terms of terrorist events, uh, we, we've done an amazing job in spite of everything that has gone on with the police and defunding the police and police are terrible and on and on and on. That fight never goes away. But now, more recently, if you see what just happened in Nashville, Christmas Day. Now, let me just tell you another thing for your audience in the, in the NYPD Intelligence Division. On any major holiday, instead of collapsing and going down to minimum manning, we go up. New Year's Eve, Christmas, Thanksgiving holidays, those are all like what we call blackout periods. You're not getting vacation for that time. Because those are dates that they usually love to do something. Because they're trying to make an impact. By, you know, now again, psychologically, psychologically, well, that's population. They do it on your holiday. Exactly. Punch you in the face. They want you to know that we're still here and we're we're not going anywhere. What what happened now out in Nashville? I'm not going to speak to that because I don't really know enough about it. You weren't on the ground. You don't know. I I don't know. Everybody else has got an opinion. But I will tell you one thing that's interesting about that that I noticed on the news report. The Memphis field sack uh, sack agent came all the way to Nashville. And What's a SAC agent? Special agent in charge from the FBI. He comes and gives a press conference. The chief of police, so the Nashville police, the mayor, they all were there at this press conference. And then it, toward the end, the actual Nashville FBI SAC agent or special agent in charge comes out and he gives a speech. And I'm looking at his body language and I'm comparing it to the SAC agent from Memphis. And I'm saying, that guy is calm and confident. This guy, the, the, the Nashville FBI agent, Looks like he just got woke up out of his sleep. Like he doesn't know what's going on. He's got a scared affect on his face. Again, I do interview and interrogation. I read people's body language. That is a tell for me that there's more to this story. I could be 100% wrong and maybe just got a bad night's sleep. I don't know. But the compare and contrast of the two, and you can go back. It's on YouTube, the interview right there, the press conference that he gave. You'll see, you'll see a market change between that Memphis FBI agent and the Nashville FBI agents. And he looks worried. That could be, could be something, could be nothing. I don't know. But they want to close this up. Put a bow on it. We're done with this. It was a lone wolf. He's dead. He blew himself up. Nothing to see here. You think that's very quick? Let me just tell you something. In the intelligence division, this thing would go on for weeks in the NYPD. For weeks. 24-7. This guy I worked for, I'm telling you, he was a maniac. There would be no stone left unturned. And the NYPD does something that the FBI doesn't really do. They do door knocks. They talk to real people. They bring them in. The FBI, they got to have a meeting to have a meeting. The NYPD is very, um, very spontaneous and, and aggressive in terms of their investigation. They don't need a meeting. They need a, they need a leadership chain and they need an address. That's all they need. They don't need to have a meeting to know whether or not we're going to go talk to this person. They just go. They get directed, they get supervised, and they go. So you guys are like, in your opinion, Probably one of the biggest parts of anti-terrorism. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And when you factor in, and I'm just... Will I'm, defunding affect that at all, you think? No, because I, I think most of, the, most of the money in terms of the intelligence division comes from federal funding, because that's part of Homeland Security. So when they say defund, what are they taking money away from? What are they doing? Are they, I have no idea. Like, I don't... Could it mean less cops out there? I think it could mean less training. You know, they're all for having more training. You know, I... I, I you know, again, It just makes no sense, right? It's... it's, it's um, 
I, I, it's like the sky is falling. The, the sky is blue. It's, 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 it's opposite of whatever is normal. It's not normal anymore. I don't understand it. Um, you would think it would be universal that people want to, you know, protect their families and their children and, and their spouses and things like that. And, you know, go to New York city or go to any major city and just enjoy themselves. But that can't happen now. You can't sit outside. Like you were saying, you know, New York's a ghost town. It's not you safe. Can, you can't sit outside. You can't enjoy. You, got, you can sit outside, but you better be watching over your shoulder. Yeah. I haven't had to do that in a long time. In yeah. New York. It's, it's, um, and you can feel it. And then, you know, again, defund the police, right? The police need more training. We need, um, we need a uh, psychiatrist or a social worker to come to the police. They had an incident just the other day. You saw it. We all saw it on uh, St. John the Divine up in Harlem. That there's a, a choir out there singing Christmas time. Thank you. It was beautiful. And we have some maniac with a gun on the steps. And now he wants to start shooting people. Okay. Two cops on patrol. They didn't, they, they probably got the bare minimum training. They probably haven't had that like kind of training since they left the academy. They didn't need anybody to tell them what to do. They knew exactly what to do. Evacuate the, the innocent people, contain this person. And, you know, if push comes to shove, we may have to use deadly physical eliminate force. Eliminate the yeah. threat. You have to eliminate the threat. What are you going to do? Preserve life. You, you, you're going to do hide behind a door and wait for, wait for uh, the ESU to come, which, you know, who could blame them? But they didn't do that. The same thing with the people in Nashville. The officers there in Nashville, they were all heroes too. They didn't do that. And they could have died. They could have, definitely could have easily died. Not if not from gunfire, if from, from the just blast. from the blast itself. So, you know, I don't know where the social worker plays into any one of those scenarios. I don't know how helpful they are. Uh, I think it's pretty stupid. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's. I think it's. It's idiotic. beyond. It's beyond stupid. I think if they go out there, they're going to get killed, and that's going to be eliminated right away. They were. They were a liability. They're not. A, they're not. A, they're not an asset. It's not like having a jack in your car in case you get a flat tire. <laughs> These people are. are Less valuable than a jack and a spare uh, I tire. feel bad for anyone that takes that job because they'll probably be in a body bag after a couple of years. No, no more than a couple of months, maybe, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. But I'm not a cop, so I don't know. So you wrap up this career. You're doing some very important work. You're protecting America from potential terrorists and New York City. Yeah. Greatest city in the world up until now. It's starting to look like Dallas might take that position the way things are looking or Miami. Everyone's leaving. Everyone's left. No one's seen any hope. That comes from the top down, not the, the bottom up. Absolutely. Um, you finish your career there. Yeah. How the hell you end up in Iraq, man? <laughs> I moved to Roanoke, Virginia. and uh, Now, your kids are young at this phase. Oh, so to even make a decision like that, to me, is an extraordinary decision you had to make. Yeah. What? How does this happen? How does this come about? I don't want to make it a long story, but um, I, I was surrounded by some gifted, amazing people in the intelligence division. They made me look like a superstar. And quite honestly, um, they, I learned from them. They didn't learn from me. I learned from gifted investigators and interrogators, people that I'm very, very close to to this day. And it was a real mentoring process. And I had a decision to make. I could either stay, uh, which would have been very easy, and um, I was well-liked and well-respected and things, or I could just move and leave the madness. You know, it was going on for five years, you know, five years straight. My day started at probably about six o'clock in the morning and I didn't get home till most times 10, 11 o'clock at night. I'm being compensated for it. So I'm not, it's not a boohoo about that. But after about five years of doing that and running and having a phone, being married to the phone, which I didn't mind either. My wife was, is phenomenal in terms of being understanding. So we had, have a great relationship is that, but I kind of looked at it like I'm missing a lot of stuff too with my kids. And I said, you know what? I have this opportunity to move to Roanoke, Virginia, I had gone down there and visited it. It was beautiful. It's 
I, I'm on three acres of property. I was living at Long Beach at the time in New York, which is a small beach community. And my, my house was 900 square feet. And, you know, the houses in between each house is, is less than eight feet. And, uh, and I had amazing neighbors there too, but I was just like, I can't live like this forever with two kids and a dog and a wife. We're living like rats, man. It's New York, <laughs> like sardines. Uh, believe me, I get it. So I, I took this opportunity and um, it didn't work out. The person I was involved with in the business didn't work out. It was going to do home modeling and reconstruction and, and uh, remodeling and uh, home construction. And um, I applied for this job and I actually uh, had applied for several jobs. And this uh, recruiter called me from uh, MPRI. L3 communication, which what is, is that? It's um, military professional resources international. It's and like contractors. It was a contracting job. Yeah. And um, for the military, for the, for the military, working directly side by side with the military, not a security gig, not a, what we call a gate monkey, not, not Blackwater, not Z or any of those other organizations. And um, he describes the job and says, you know, um, you'd be going to Iraq. You'd be what they call the legal advisor or the um, criminal law enforcement advisor to a brigade commander. Is that something you'd be interested in? I said, yeah, it's something I'd be definitely interested in. And um, I ran. But he did say you have to go to Iraq. And he did say I have to go to Iraq. And he did, he did say it was, um, it was going to be at least a one year commitment. So uh, I, you know, I ran up by my wife and I said, what do you think? She goes, what do you, what do you mean? What do I think? This is what you do. This is what you love to do. Like, you know, chase the bad guy and do, you know, do this stuff. And I said, okay, well, I just want to let you know. And, uh, so that conversation happened in like the uh, beginning of October. And I think by the time of November, I was doing the onboard training, doing the background checks and all that stuff. And then um, how long was your first contract for? Well, I only did one contract. So it, the initial contract was going to be 12 months. I ended up spending 15 months in, in Iraq. Yeah. But um, I go to the training and now um, I'm getting called out of the training, the main room where they're having all these powers, uh, slideshows and things, PowerPoints and slideshows. And, um, it's the program manager and he calls me and this other fellow, uh, L and this other guy, Lou, and we go into his room and they close the door and, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> what's this all about? You know what I mean? And, uh, he goes, listen, relax. You guys aren't in trouble. He goes, we're going over your resumes and, um, we have another project. We, we think that you guys would be a good fit. And uh, you're either as good as your resumes are, or you're all full of shit. But either way, we want to know. We're going to find out. We're going to find out, right? So um, I go from being just an advisor to basically I'm going to be an interrogator at the point of capture of insurgents that were building bombs, killing soldiers and uh, coalition forces. And again, they asked me, are you interested? Because it was, you weren't obligated. Did you know a Rob Farlow out there? And no, I don't. He was the K nine unit with the dogs to sniff out IEDs. I well, we had K nine units, but he wasn't assigned with with me. But um, but no, you, you might have brushed shoulders just like that first. I, I wouldn't. I would not be surprised. We got around. <laughs> so, but I think he was there in the height of that whole, the whole stuff that was going on. Yeah. So you're now in charge of basically, in, uh, interrogating, right? Potential terrorists creating explosive devices that can destroy our, our, our guys right. and girls out there. And just to be clear, I'm part of a team. They call it the Phoenix team. And um, the, the majority members of the team are all retired special forces operators. So these all have different skill sets. So you would have an Intel analyst, but although he was a special forces green beret, um, you would have somebody that was uh, an EOD an explosive ordinance de uh, detection type person you would have somebody that was also what they call a TEO or technical exploitation officer. So they all have these amazing skill sets in combination with other serious hard skill sets and, and, you know, defensive and, 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 
and marksmanship and things like that. You know, you don't just become a green beret. You don't just become a special forces operator because you raise your hand. And you think that would be fun to do too. I mean, this, their, their training is extensive and now, but now they're all retired now. So we're all part of this team and my team and the team that I'm part of the Phoenix team, my specialty is the criminal part and the interrogation part. So they'd spin up a target. We call it a bad guy, a bad guy. We'd locate him tentatively, geographically. And I'm not going to get too technical and I'm not going to go into the uh, type of of national security. Yeah, I'm not going to get involved in all the other stuff. But eventually we'd find this person at three o'clock in the morning. Generally speaking, we did night, night operations, no traffic on the road. And once the limit, limit risk to civilians yeah. and stuff like that. So, and we're co-mingled with an actual army organization. So just so your, your audience has an, an understanding, we're all retired. The people that are driving the vehicles, the military vehicles to get us to where we have to go are regular army there, but they're just our drivers and they provide a security element and a cordon as well. The units that we supported were full 100% army. So you're in a unit, and I'm just going to use the unit that we supported most most often was this unit called 122TST from 4th ID. So that's Tactical Strike Team. They would identify a target in conjunction with our own intelligence officer who was targeting. And we would roll, and we would support this unit. They would breach the door, whether it was an easy entry or they had to blow it off with a shotgun. It's a, it's a mixed bag of how it actually unfolds. The dogs would go in. They would secure the location. Once that took place... We would separate the people. Obviously, the women were really not so much interested in, although we did have some women terrorists, as might come as a surprise to some people in your audience. And then the males. Now, the, the first question, the first total that has to be met is, we need positive ID. Who is this guy? You know, we're talking about electronic surveillance. So, you know, this guy is just maybe just a voice in, in the air. We don't have a physical picture to tie him to, to who he is. We don't have a name. Maybe we have a nickname. We don't know who this is. So that is the, the process of how it all goes. Once we actually know who the person is, then I would take him into the bathroom and I would start interrogating him. A lot of times it turns out the person I was interrogating wasn't the actual guy that we were looking for. Then I'd move on to the next person. And through process of elimination, certain techniques that you would use interrogation, you could identify who the actual main player was from that. And then from there, we would say, okay, you're not such a bad guy. And I'm just using general terms. Where are the rest of your friends? Because we don't want you to take the fall for this. And I'm, you know, I'm making this as a story, not as an actual event. And I've gone to as many as four different targets in one night based on what people told me at each stop along the way. So these were previously unidentified targets. So in other words, I got you. You're the main focus of this, of this uh, particular mission. But there's three or four other outstanding cell members that I had no awareness to because they hadn't been previously identified. But this guy is willing to take me to their house or their building or wherever it is that they are. So the genius of this team was just that, the team, the people all working together to make this team work. Because the amount of experience that you would have as a retired Special Forces operator, the amount of experience that I would have as as a a 20-year career NYPD and interrogator is worlds apart from some 18-year-old kids. And I call them kids. They're not kids. They're men. But they just don't have that level of experience. You can't encapsulate 20 years of experience in, in a school that the military gets, they send these soldiers to. It just doesn't work that I way. I agree. Experience is a whole nother level. So these interrogations in the movies, they make it look like you guys slap these people up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, none of that going on. No, seriously. No. Yeah. Seriously. Um, it's all psych- Even though you're hunting people that are blowing up Humvees, man. Oh, I, I, let me just tell you something. Um, when you're in a room with someone that, you know, that killed a soldier, 
Um, and you've been in that situation? A uh, hundred times over. In Iraq? A hundred times over. You can't imagine the amount of adrenaline that is going through your body. You can't even imagine the level of satisfaction in knowing that this guy who, whether he emplaced the bomb, built the bomb, financed the bomb, or created a safe harbor for these people, that you got him. That he is no longer in play anymore. Is the problem going to go away completely? No. But this level of satisfaction, is, I, can't even, I can't even explain it to you. It's just, it's unimaginable. The level of satisfaction for the soldiers and us viewing the soldiers, how good they felt about themselves, is another level of emotion I can't even, I can't even put into words. It's so gratifying and so humbling at the same time to be around these, these young, uh, young people. It's, ama it's amazing. It's really, really amazing. The team collectively rounded up 91 high-value targets, Tier 1 and Tier 2. These are the same targets that Delta and the SEALs were going after. I participated in 110 combat missions, not sitting at the base, out there in a filthy, nasty bathroom talking to these people most of the time because I needed an interrogation room and I needed to confine this person to make sure there wasn't any distraction. And I didn't want his buddies who may or may not have been involved to hear my conversation while I'm in the bathroom with this person. And um, the program was so successful that we had two 30-day consecutive periods. They break everything down in, into periods. 60 days straight without a single IED event or a soldier being killed or injured in southern Baghdad in the region that I was operating in, that the team was operating in. And why do you think a lot of these guys went along with, with making these explosives? Was it because they believed in the ideology or they were just being paid to do it and they just did it for the money? There's a lot of different reasons. Um, psychologically, some of them were probably indoctrinated in the uh, madrasas. Um, some of them were foreign fighters. They weren't even from Iraq. Um, Where were they from? All over Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Afghanistan. Uh, no, I didn't, if there was, I don't, I didn't come across any from Afghanistan, uh, mostly, mostly Arab males from the Arabian Peninsula. Um, some of it's financial, some of it, you know, some of these people were doctors, some of these people were lawyers and you have to understand now they, Saddam goes away and we went from a Sunni nation to a Shiite nation and these people can't get jobs now because now they have a Shiite Al, uh, Nori Al-Maliki, he's the prime minister. So he's taking care of his Sunni brothers first before he's going to take care of his uh, Shiite brothers. And now there's all kinds of uh, what they call Mahdi armies running around. So each little territory, each little province within... It became very tribal. Oh, 100%. 100%. And the amount of graft and money that is going through their hands and the amount of power that they're given because they're liberated. You can't... The army can't be uh, the policeman of a country. They just can't... It can't be done. So they're taking full advantage of that. They're taking full advantage of the fact that we play by a set of rules. We don't shoot people indiscriminately. We don't hurt women or children. I mean, they're exploiting that to the ninth degree. It's, it's unbelievable. Do you think Iraq will survive as a one nation in Europe, if you had to guess? Or do you see it breaking up one day? I, I see it being overrun by Iran if things don't turn around. I think Iran has just been waiting and sharpening its teeth. So waiting. a lot of their people are in there. Oh, absolutely. Double agents, agents, you, all you, that. You have to understand, the bombs that they were using that were penetrating through... Uh, one-inch armored thick steel of various vehicles uh, were made in Iran. The technology is from Iran. Um, I don't care how big or how heavy this vehicle is. That EFP, Iranian, they call it uh, an explosive form penetrator or projectile, depending on your school of thought, is coming in one side and going out the other of any, I don't care what vehicle it is. 
and it's killing everybody inside. And if it doesn't kill you from the spall or the blast, it'll kill you from the fire because now the vehicle's disabled and you can't get out of the vehicle. So you're being incinerated like in a microwave, unfortunately, these, these, uh, these uh, soldiers. So um, you do some, I mean, it's very important work what you did out there. And you did 15 months of it. 15. Any close calls, man? A couple of close calls. You lose any guys you were working with uh, on, the, on the military side? We lost some, you- not from the team. Uh, the t- thank God the team was fine. And nobody got hurt uh, with the team. Some of the units that we supported, we lost, uh, we lost people. Um, I was on the base uh, one time, actually, again, on, on the phone with my wife. Um, and we got mortared and three people got killed on the base. Um, right into the base. Right into the base. Right, in the, right, right over the, the right. In fact, one of the, one of the poor guys that got killed, this one soldier, he worked in the motor, uh, motor pool, motor transport. So he was actually p- parking a Humvee and a mortar comes over. He's just a mechanic, basically. Hits the mechanic. He's not even involved in combat operations. We're getting mortar from outside. Do you feel that maybe they felt like, well, these are American occupiers? Do you feel like these people were loyal to Saddam? Is that why they kept fighting to the end? Or I, I think I there's so many different factions. There, there it, I think it's a variety of reasons. I think, like you, like you had mentioned, money is a is a motivator for anybody. If you have no job. Uh, and they view you, the Americans, and anybody else that's there with, as, as part of the coalition as an occupier. Yeah, it's easy to hate somebody. It's easy to gin up that kind of hate, just like we hate the police. You know, p- you know, police, police are bad. You know, military are bad. The, the military. I mean, you don't really hear about Iraq too much more on the news. Like it no. sounds like it's stabilized. I mean, is it? I mean, from what you can tell, you still talk to anybody out there? Uh, I don't. I don't really have any close contacts with people out there. So you know, I'm not going to speak on my my situation. Except for the f- couple bullshit missiles that uh, Iran filed. Yeah. Uh, well, my situation. That's how 2020 started. Remember, yeah. they were making all the jokes. World War Three starting. There was all the memes going out. Yeah. The younger generation jokes around about stuff like yeah. that because they think it's funny. Yeah. They think the concept that we might go to World War Three. These people have no idea what war is. Well, you you know, remember last January, not this past January, but the January before when we killed Salmani. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, you know, he that's, was a the missiles came over. Yeah, a religious scholar, and he was, a, you know, this guy was a murderer. He's running around in Iraq thinking that he can do whatever he wants with impunity, and they're going to question President Trump. Forget about whether you like Trump or not. That was the right call. That guy should have been killed a long time ago, but. He made the mistake of going in Iraq. The Iraqi government gave us the green light. I'm assuming I don't have direct access yeah, to whatever. Someone, to, someone made the, the and the, they the, said bye bye, no problem solved. You're gone, you're gone. Should have stayed in Iran. Well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have flaunted it in everybody's face that you're some tough guy when you're not. A, you're not a tough guy. Not for a fucking drone. No, it's crazy. Yeah, but you know when we killed, you know, uh, the the person in Yemeni when when they had the Obama administration and they drone striked an American citizen in Yemen. Um, nobody had a problem with that. Everybody thought that was great. You're talking about uh, the... Uh, Anwar al-Waki. Al-Waki, yeah. yeah. Nobody had a problem with that. That was good. That was good. That's the first time in history that an American citizen was killed on foreign soil. There, was, the, there was debate over that, too. A lot of debate. A lot how, of debate. How, what did you think about it, personally? Um, again, problem solved. Problem solved. I'm sure they... So there shouldn't be a trial if they can arrest them, charge them with crimes no. as an American citizen? No. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I misunderstood the question. Should he have been? Because the debate, I think, on, on that, and that was a very big, till this day, they still talk about that. I, I misunderstood your question. I thought you meant like. The um, debate was, well, why should a president or the government be able to issue an execution order if the person's capturable? Yeah. If that's even a word. Right. 
they should be tried. Right. Because they're American. Right. I, b- believe me, I would have liked to have seen that. But, you know, the, the, the backstory to that is that the FBI try, tried twice to uh, prosecute him. And they actually used him as a, an informant. It's all on open source. You can Google it and find out for yourself. And, uh, and that's when he said, you know what? I'm going to Yemen because I can still sp- you know, spat out my Didn't his kid get killed too, though? I don't if know. If I'm not mistaken. You, you know, you have That was a big part of the whole. You got, you got me there, Beck. I'm not sure. If I'm sure. not mistaken. I, I, you could be right. I don't know. Yeah, so I think that's what added a lot of fuel to it. That maybe some innocent, there was some collateral damage, some innocent people were killed. It, quite possibly. I think people, again, they say there's this feel like, okay, we understand we want to take out terrorists, but we're scared of that line being crossed where they can. Right. Now this war ends in Iraq, but they can use the same thing on us, even maybe here in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's I, that there's that due process that people want to protect so much, and that's why, you know, people are scared of. And I understand the other aspect of it, but the the loss of our constitutional rights is something that's terrifying to people that understand freedom. Right, I agree. Meaning that even though we hate this piece of shit, you know, the terrorist or whatever they are that we're about to take on, and we know they're going to do bad to America, but. There might be someone at a higher level that abuses that power. Right. And that's what people get worried about. Right. That's the debate. That's well, the discourse. And here, here's, the, here's the other thing. Like, I got to protect the rights of a piece of shit, basically, to make sure that my rights one day and my children's rights. Like, there's that argument, you know? Right. Due process. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, but this is a guy, you know, this uh, Alwaki uh, fellow, he's the, uh, he is the, uh, this was the spiritual advisor to uh, Nadal Hassan, who shot up Fort Hood. And they knew about it. People knew about it. Again, I'm not going to get too far down in the weeds, but it's all open source. They knew about him. They knew what he was doing. They knew what Awaki was doing. They knew what uh, Major Nadal Hassan was doing. He's uh, counseling people as a therapist, telling soldiers, lay down your arms. You don't want to take up arms against our, our Muslim brothers and things like things of that nature. And these are, these are soldiers with PTSD that are cl- complaining about him to their leadership. And instead of, you know, pulling him out of the psychological services part of the army, they promoted him to major. So there's a lot of problems that, you know, we, some of them are self-inflicted. You know, we, we look at things and we, it's kind of touchy, you know, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to address this problem, but the elephant's right there in the room. It's right there for everybody to see. Sometimes your own rules can be used against you. That's it. I, I, I get it. So there's a lot of this information that we didn't get into that's in your book, right? There's a lot more Oh yeah. people buy the book. We're going to go, cause I want, I want people to read it. I don't want them to get the whole story here. That's the whole point. I want them to support your work. And the works of people who have risked their lives for our country and saved a lot of life. So, um, how do you feel about America right now, man? Where she is? We're 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 we're, we're, we're approaching January sixth very quickly. This election, at least on paper, seems like it's over. January sixth is the day where it becomes literally that's the last certification process. Do you think this potential? For major uprests, uprising, I'm sorry, in this country right now. How do you feel? I mean, what's the mood like in Virginia? Virginia was a state that people were saying might, you know, the Civil War might start there last year. They were talking about the whole debate of the gun rights. And that's something that I did want to ask you. I mean, as someone that was a police officer and you've been to some dangerous places in the world, I mean, are you pro-Second Amendment? Oh, absolutely. Why is that important to you because i feel like in new york people don't have a second amendment right in my opinion yeah i i, I, look, I feel like the prohibitions on it and the processes that you have to go through you know to me i just don't see people having that right in new york city the way they sh- they have it in like texas for example right I, where, where do you feel about that and where do you think where do you think 
the process of that should be like do you think that the way new york does it is the right way in your opinion i mean just you know your, your humble opinion i i because you also in charge of getting guns off the yeah. street so it's, it's a great question to ask someone of your caliber i i think wherever there's strict gun rules um the violence of gun of uh gun violence is is highest so you only have to look at chicago you only have to look at new york to see that Less guns or less legal guns uh, doesn't necessarily equate to a safer city. Don't or, you think there would be less, like, look, look, like, what was that, that church in uh, Texas? Yeah. The guy stood up and. Miracle. Hero. The first one, obviously, when you watch that video, I don't know if you've probably seen it. He tries to get it out of his oh, hole. Yeah. So he wasn't ready, that guy. So that yeah. guy, unfortunately, I mean, he was brave to risk his life to put that threat down. Yep. He was definitely, he was rusty, it looks like. Yep. He went for the thing. It looked like it. There was a delay there when he's trying to get the gun out. Right. He should have probably took the gun out first and then stood up, I who, guess. Who knows? Who knows? But the guy behind him took that guy out. There was, mean, how many people would have died? I think that? I think within about 10 seconds, there were about five different guns pointing at that guy at some point in time. If that's the same, if we're talking about the same Yeah, video. that's what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. And that second guy that got up saved everybody. Yeah. So my point is I, I feel like having good people unarmed is not going to make the world a safer no. place. Because there's a lot of sick people out there. Right who, you know, are going to find a way to get a weapon and do bad things, and they don't even need a gun. No, no. And I just think that maybe if we want to talk about people should get certified and trained, not just give people guns, right. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But as far as the the prohibitions and how long it takes, and you can only buy this and you can only do that, and you know, to, me, I've, to me that's just overreach. It's too, I don't think that's what the Second Amendment was designed for. Yeah, I I have no problem with people going. I think people should be trained. I, I 100% because they're going to kill themselves or someone by accident, crossfire or whatever. God forbid there's a situation where there's danger and they want to, you know, try to help. Because by the time cops get there, you can have 30 people dead yeah. today. I mean, 40 people dead. Look what happened in uh, New Zealand. Florida is another example. I mean, there's more guns and more registered guns and, you know, open carry versus concealed carry. I mean, in Virginia, they have both. You, anybody that's not a convicted felon can carry a gun open carry. So if I have a gun, it's got to be on my outer most uh, piece of clothing. It has to be visible. Even if you're not a resident of Virginia? O only if you're a resident of Virginia and you don't have a felony, you don't have a felony conviction, which opens up a lot. And, not, and it's not uncommon to walk into a store, and I don't care if it's a grocery store or a CVS or a Walmart or whatever, and you see people with a, with a gun on their, on their hip, both men and women. And I'm fine with that. I don't, have a, I don't have a problem with that. I don't think those are the people you really have to worry about. I question whether or not why it is they don't have a concealed carry. Maybe they can't pass the, the training or they don't want to pay for the actual certification or they didn't want to file for the permit. I, you know, any, any myriad of ways of why they don't have it. Then you have the, the concealed. But Florida, same thing. I mean, if you want to carry a gun, you can carry there if you're not a convicted felon. At least that's my understanding. And same thing with Texas. So, they don't seem to be having the problems that all these other big cities like D.C., New York now, and Baltimore Chicago. and Chicago and all these other, there's problems, you know. Newark. You don't hear anything like South Dakota, you know, shooter went on a rampage, like, because everybody in South Dakota is probably hunt, a hunter or Idaho or something like that has a firearm or has access to a firearm. I so, always give the analogy. Imagine living in the world back in the day when there was only swords and you tell everyone you can't have a sword. <laughs> you can't have a sword. No one would ever have tolerated that back in those right. days. Agreed. Because evil is always going to be there, man. Yeah, agreed. Folks, an extraordinary story for the rest of it. Check out the book. The link's below. From Brooklyn to Baghdad. My new friend, Christopher Strom. Check the book out. 
and we hope to hear from him in the future and have him back on. Yeah. Maybe give us an update with everything that's going on. Absolutely. And we want to thank you for everything you've done for our country and our city here in New York. Thank you. And we wish you all the best in the future. Thanks for having me on the show, Beck, very much. I appreciate and it. just remember one thing, folks. No matter what you've been through, he had a rocky star in his childhood. He could have let that destroy him. Maybe you're someone out there, your parents got divorced. Maybe both your parents are not even in your life. And it's easy to feel helpless. It's easy to be mad. And that emotion can control you and that emotion can destroy you. Or you can take that pain, choose a path, choose a direction. Just choose a direction, but choose the right direction. And he's a proof that, you know, he went through a hard childhood. He picked the right path. He did something with his life. He was able to create a beautiful family for himself. And uh, he's the proof that no matter what you've been through in life, no matter how hard it gets, as long as you have air in those lungs, you can always make a comeback. That's my guy. He did his homework. <laughs> right on the spot. No second take with Christopher Strom. This is Beck Lover, and we'll see you next time on The Comeback Team. Beck Lover.